Grab your outline there from your Bible or from your folder, and uh, we're in a uh, summer series here on marriage, and today we're going to be looking uh, specifically at uh, the role, the biblical role of the wife within the confines of marriage. Uh, There's an old story that illustrates the principle of honor within a marriage between a husband and a wife. And the story goes like this. There was an old drunkard husband. He spent the evening with his jovial friends down at the local tavern. He boasted that if he took a group of his drunken friends home with him at midnight, and he asked his Christian wife to get up and to cook supper for them, that she would do it without a complaint. Well, the crowd, his buddies there, didn't believe him. They considered it to be a rather vain boast, and they dared him to try it. <laughs> so the drunken crowd followed him home that night at midnight, and he made the unreasonable demand of his wife. She obeyed. She dressed, she came down, she prepared a very nice supper, and served it cheerfully as if she had been expecting them. After supper, one of the men asked, how she could be so kind when they had been so unreasonable. And plus the fact that she didn't approve of their drunken conduct. Her reply was simple. She said, Sir, when my husband and I were married, we were both sinners. It has pleased God to call me out of that dangerous condition. My husband continues in it. I tremble for his future state. Were he to die as he is, he would be miserable forever, for all eternity. I think it is my duty to render his present existence as comfortable as possible. Not long after, her husband was miraculously saved. Now, as we come to this section of our study on marriage and family in our series, the roles of men and women. We're going to be covering the role of the wife today. Um, We come to scriptures that deal with what God has assigned for men and women within the context of marriage. That's what we're dealing with. And we're going to look today at Ephesians 5, and then next week we'll look at Titus 2 concerning the wives. Um, Today we're going to be looking specifically at the wife's role in marriage. And I think that there's nothing uh, that's more under attack in in our present culture than the wife's role. Um, We constantly see it around us. In the most obvious front, the attack comes from the modern feminist movement, the agenda that they hold. As a matter of fact, in an article... It was a document written, the Declaration of Feminism. And they wanted to define the feminist agenda. You find these words in there. It says this, Marriage has existed for the benefit of men and has been legally sanctioned a method of control over women. The end of the institution of marriage is a necessary condition for the liberation of women. 
Therefore, it is important for us to encourage women to leave women to leave their husbands and not to live individually with men. Now we know that it is the institution of marriage that has failed us and we must work to destroy it. There's people that actually believe that and that's what they're desiring to do. Those are frightening words when you stop and you think, where did marriage come from? (laughs) It came from the very hand of God. Um, A lot of times the attack on marriage is a lot more subtle than that in our culture. Instead of calling for the destruction of marriage, many people uh, choose to redefine the roles within the context of marriage. They redefine what God has put in place to govern marriage. But regardless of whatever form the attacks come in, it's clear to us that marriage is under attack in our culture today. Um, And you know what? Those attacks are as old as marriage itself. It's as old as time. Um, It started in the Garden of Eden, as a matter of fact, as a result of the curse. Um, It's even possible that the problems in your marriage, in my marriage, and all marriages have problems, um, began as part of God's divine curse on Adam and Eve for their sin. Look back with me just quickly in Genesis chapter 3, all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in the chair in front of you or somewhere. We were in Genesis chapter 2 last week and the week before, but now we're just look at Genesis chapter 3. Because God had only given Adam and Eve one prohibition. Only one thing that they couldn't do in this beautiful place called the Garden of Eden. And guess what they did? They chose to do that one thing. They chose to sin. And as a result of that, um, God pronounces a series of judgment beginning in verse 14. First of all, he says um, to the serpent that he's going to curse the serpent and He's going to have to crawl around. And then down in verse 16, notice what he says in verse 16. He says, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then look at this. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now we want to focus on what that means. What does that mean? Your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Well, a lot of commentators have a lot of different ideas about what that means. But a lot of people believe that your desire will be for your husband doesn't mean in a passionate way or anything like that. It means that she will desire to lord over her husband. She will want to run the household. She will want to rule in the household. She will want to usurp the husband's authority. And not only that, she's predisposed to do that. To usurp the role that God has given the man in marriage. And lest you think it just speaks about the women there in that verse, it also says that he will rule over you. A lot of the same commentaries believe that that has an implication that the husband will be regularly tempted to abuse the position that God has given him and rule his family like a despot. 
or a dictator. Neither one of those things is correct. The word rule in verse 16 is often used in that context. Whether that interpretation in verse 16 or not, we don't know but for sure, but we've seen that in marriages all the time. When people, especially men, speak of submission in, 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 in reference to the role of their wife, they think, well, yeah, I'm in charge and I'm the, I'm the king of this you know, family and don't you dare cross me. Well, we're going to look at this today. Uh, you will see that if you plan at some point uh, to get married, that's going to come up. If you are married, that comes up. It just does. Because we enter marriage with a natural built-in antagonism to the way that God has set things up. The way that God has given us, we don't just naturally fall into, into order that way. We fight against that. If you do nothing at all, In your marriage, if you simply just carry along with what is natural, then you will violate the roles that God has created for your marriage, just naturally, because we're fallen. Even though we're in Christ, even though our sins are forgiven, even though we're not under any condemnation in Christ, we're still sinners saved by God's grace, and we're going to do what's natural to us. And so we want to examine for the next couple of weeks, the wife's role in marriage. What exactly does Scripture lay out as a responsibility for the wife within the confines of marriage? So ladies, we're going to talk about the guys in a couple of weeks, so I'm not you know, <laughs> shying away from that. We're going to deal with, with us as well uh, and the role that God has given the men. But today we're going to focus on the women, on the wives. And this is really fundamental. It's really foundational to your marriage. If you get this wrong, you're going to have issues. And I pray that you'll pay close attention to what God has designed marriage to be. A Christian marriage can only honor God as long as it reflects the divine intention of God. A Christian marriage can only honor God as long as it defines the intention uh, uh, natural, the divine design of God as it reflects the divine nature of God. And so when we stop and we think about our marriages, that's the goal, to discover exactly what God designed marriage to be. Now we spent two weeks on marriage itself, but now we're going to dial down a little bit more and look at the wife's role. The most direct expression of the wife's responsibility in marriage is found in two New Testament passages. I already mentioned them. Uh, Ephesians 5, And you can turn over there if you want. And Titus 2. We're going to spend today in Ephesians 5. And there, more than anywhere else in the New Testament, God lays out through the Apostle Paul what exactly the wife's role is in Christian marriage. And we're going to discover the primary duties and the delights of a Christian wife. That's what we're going to look at today. Um, of a godly wife. So what exactly are these duties? Well, let's begin in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, that's where we find um, the first great duty of a wife. And it doesn't come as a great surprise. The first great duty of a wife is the primary duty duty, delight of a, of a godly wife is what? Submission. It's submission. 
Now, I know that's a word that may send, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck up, whatever, but that's just the way it is. Submission is duly constituted authority, and it's really fallen on hard times. You see it today in our culture. People don't like to submit to anybody, especially authority. We just saw videos of police being doused with water and having buckets thrown at them this past week. That's, that's an affront to their authority as a law enforcement office, officer. And so when you stop and you think about it, the same thing has happened to the roles as God designed within marriage. Well, the first one is for the wife is submission. That's a huge problem in our society at all levels. doesn't matter whether you're talking about children submitting to their parents, wives submitting to their husbands, uh, church members submitting to the elders, uh, students submitting to their teachers, employees to their employers, citizens to government officials. At every level of our society, our culture is bent to refuse to submit to authority. That's just our natural bent. And the authority that God has sovereignly placed over us, by the way, we tend to forget that. And so we need to understand what that means. More than that, I think it's important to understand submission didn't come along when human culture began. Submission to authority of various kinds. Because submission is, just like relationship, is rooted in the very nature of God the very character of God, so is submission. Submission is, is rooted in the very character of who God is. Wayne Grudem puts it this way. He says, the idea of headship and submission never began. It has always existed in the eternal nature of God himself. And in the most basic of all authority relationships, authority is not based on gifts or abilities. It's just there. The relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is one of leadership and authority on the one hand, and voluntary, willing, joyful submission to that authority on the other hand. We can learn from this that submission to a rightful authority is a noble virtue. It is a privilege. It is something good and desirable. It is the virtue that has been demonstrated by the eternal Son of God forever. It is his glory, the glory of the Son, as he relates to the Father. Submission is not a principle created in time for mankind. Submission is part of the eternal character of God himself, the Son eternally submitting to his Father. So when you come to the concept of submission, understand that this concept is foreign to our culture. It's foreign to who we are as human beings, but it's absolutely foundational because we see it in the very character of God. Well, let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. I want to read this passage for us and just follow along in your Bibles. Paul writes there, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody To the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting, there's the word, to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
22. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Very important text when it comes to the role of a wife in a marriage. I want you to notice there that he begins with a very practical instruction about marriage. And that's in your outline there. The first thing he says is don't be drunk with wine, but be what? Be filled, be controlled by the Spirit. I think a lot of believers don't understand what it means to be filled by the Holy Spirit. If being filled with the Spirit is what enables us to dwell in relationships in regards to our marriages in a way that honors God honors God, our families in a way that honors God. And in chapter 6, where employers and employees, even that's the closest thing we have to slave and master relationships, well, how can we dwell in a proper way in all these relationships? It's only made possible by the filling of God's Spirit. The filling of God's Spirit. Well, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Nowadays, you have people saying, oh, if you're filled with the Spirit, you speak in tongues, or you do loops in the you know, uh, in, the, in the aisle, or you, you do this, or you do that, or you fall back, or you shake uncontrollably, or you bark like a dog. There's all kinds of things that people are saying is a sign of being filled with the Spirit. None of those are biblical. That's not what the Bible says. That word filled basically means to be controlled by, to be controlled by. That's what, exactly what Paul says. He says, don't be controlled by wine, by alcohol, but be controlled by the Spirit. It's not some mystical experience to be filled with the Spirit. It's a very practical experience. If you turn over to Galatians, or I mean Colossians chapter 3, just a couple pages over, Colossians 3. Colossians 3 was written around the same time as Ephesians, but to a different church. It's not a mystical experience. Paul wanted to share with this church some things. He says there in verse 18, He's talking about submitting. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. In verse 19, he talks about husbands loving their wives. And then down in verse 20, he talks about um, children obeying their parents. And then in 22, he talks about um, slaves, which is kind of parallel to our employee, employers. So it's parallel to what we discovered in Ephesians. What's different is what begins what is the fountain of your will out of which this command uh, flows in in ephesians 5 it's being filled with the spirit look at what he says in verse 16 of colossians 3 he says let the word of christ dwell in you what richly let the word of christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing hymns Psalms and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do in word or deed, in everything in the name of the do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And so being filled with the Spirit is identical to allowing the Word of Christ to dwell in your heart richly. Being under control. So being filled with the Spirit, I think it's there in your outline. I put a little uh 
definition is nothing more than having a mind and a heart and a life that are controlled by and permeated by the Word of God. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It means that no matter what you come across in your life, you're going to be looking to the Word of God for the answer. Now, he could have written a lot of things here when he was writing this epistle. But back in Ephesians 5, the very first result of being filled with the Spirit, the very first consequence, you might ask yourself, of being filled with the Spirit is being filled with the Spirit of, he says, music. It's a heart that delights in music, that sings and lifts praises to God from the heart that's filled with thanksgiving. If you want to know whether or not you're controlled and your life is dominated by the Word of God, ask yourself, does this happen to you? Do you find yourself breaking in your heart and out in song? Sometimes it's embarrassing. Maybe you're driving down the freeway by yourself and all of a sudden you find yourself singing and you stop and somebody looks over like, what are they doing? You know? You're just singing away. You're just praising the Lord. See, that's what it, what it is. It's just an overflow of God's Spirit in your life. That's a demonstration of being filled with the Spirit. Now, I've also met some Christians, I don't sing, I don't like to sing, I hate singing. Well, that's a demonstration. Maybe they're not filled with the Spirit. Because music is a very integral part of worship throughout Scripture. It doesn't mean you have to you know, be on a worship team or whatever. But we should all be, when we're here gathered as the body of Christ, when we sing, it should be an overflow of our heart of, of gratefulness and gratitude and thankfulness to the Lord that we're lifting our voices loud before the Lord. But notice the second thing he says of being filled with the Spirit. It's not just the music, but he says in verse 21, he says, be subject, wives, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's what Paul wrote. He says, so first of all, one of the, the uh, things that, that results in being filled with the Spirit is just a, a real love, you might say, for music. You see it, see it in your life on every, on every turn. But then he says, secondly, if you're going to be filled with the Spirit, you'll, you'll be willing to submit to one another out of the reverence for Christ. That's that word. Submission. Being subject to. It's a participle. Remember, a participle is not the main verb of the sentence. It modifies the main verb of the sentence. So what's the main verb of the sentence? It's all the way back in verse 19. Be filled. That's the main verb. And so what's that really mean? It says be filled. And as you're being filled, you'll be submitting You'll be subjecting yourself to others. Now, people have different views on this, verse 21. It could be every Christian should be subject to every other Christian. In other words, the idea of a mutual submission. Many commentators take that view. And you know what? That's true in marriage. It's not just the wife submitting to the husband all the time. Sometimes... As husbands, we're submitting to our wives. It's a mutual submission. We're to be deferring to one another. It's a kind of 
mutual submission among relationships. We're not to be asserting ourselves and our rights and what we want, and, and, and that's the way it is. But there's a second interpretation of verse 21, and that's simply this. It says Christians should be subject to those in authority over them. Christians should be subject to those in authority over them. In other words, it's really the heading for what follows. Every other time this Greek word be subject to or or submit to occurs in the New Testament, it refers to the attitude we're to have to those in authority over us. Every other time. And so it seems odd to make it here a mutual submission when it doesn't mean that anywhere else. What Paul is probably doing here is he's giving a lot of overarching principle. That is, we're to submit to those in authority, period. And he's going to give us several examples. First of all, in verses 22 to 24, he talks about wives. And then in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, he talks about children. And back in that day, in their culture, they had slaves. And so he talks about slaves in verses 5 to 8 in chapter 6. Today, we would refer that to an employer-employee relationship. Because all those groups are under some kind of authority. They're all called to submit. So verse 21 is kind of the umbrella, you might say, laying out the fact that if you have someone who is in authority over you, you are to be subject to that person in the fear of Christ. And notice here, when Paul sets out to explain the principles of submission, he begins, first of all, with a godly wife. That's the first example. Her first duty is to be subject or to submit. Now, I want to unpack what that means this morning for us. We're going to ask several questions throughout this. The first question we need to ask is what does it mean to submit? What does it mean to submit? In verse 22, the words there, submit or be subject to, are really, in, in, in most translations, are in italics. And um, because it, they're not in that original text of that translation. Because it borrows its verb from verse 21. It means the same thing. The ESV puts it in there as submit. But it really comes from back in verse 21, submitting to one another. So wives, be subject or, or be being subject to your own husbands. That's in, in the present tense, by the way. It doesn't just mean you walk down the aisle, you say, I do, and then you never submit to them the rest of your life. No, this is an ongoing submission. It's the wife's constant duty. She's to constantly be subject to her husband. It's also in a form that it's, a, it's an imperative. <laughs> this is not something, ladies, that is optional. I know you wish it was, but it's not. It's not. It's not optional. This is a command from God himself. And, men, there's an important note for us here, too, and that is that it is addressed to women to submit. Husbands are not called 
here in this text to force their wives to submit. It doesn't say that. Because submission is to be a voluntary response of her heart in obedience to her God. Now what does it mean exactly to submit? Well, I think we have to look at what it doesn't mean first. (laughs) That's an easy way to come up with a definition. Um, It's very important to get these foundational truths correct. What does submission not mean? First of all, it does not mean that a wife should tolerate physical abuse in any form or fashion. In our world, unfortunately, there are some men who think they properly exercise headship over their families by taking out physical abuse on their wives. That's never okay, ever. Or sometimes there's nothing theoretical about it. It's simply an outburst of anger, frustration, whatever. And it really, ladies, regardless of what form it comes in, if your husband is involved in any kind of physical abuse, God has given you a way out. He's given you a way out of that. Three numbers, nine, one, one. If your husband is physically abusive to you, you call the police and you report it. That's what we're called to do. You have him arrested. That sounds strong. That sounds, wow, that's crazy. That's exactly what the Bible tells us to do. Turn over to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. Listen to what Paul writes here in Romans 13. Speaking of submission to authorities. In Romans 13, verse 1, he says, Let every person, that is man and woman, be subject to the governing authorities. That's who God has placed in government. All of us are to be subject to them, to the governing authorities. We're in submission to them. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Now, Paul is, remember here, Paul's writing to the Roman church. These are people in the church. He says, if if you're doing what's good, then you don't have to fear the authority. You'll have praise. Verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, if you violate the law, if you break the law, be afraid. For he, in other words, the government, does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. How does that relate? It relates simply this way. Wives, do not protect your law-breaking, physically abusing husband from the wrath that God intends to bring to bear on his life by not reporting physical abuse. If he abuses you, you call the police, you have him arrested. Let God bring his minister, the authorities at hand, to bear on your husband. 
If you sense you're in any physical danger at all, you, you leave immediately. Obviously, you call 911. In the Old Testament, a person who had even taken another life in, in self-defense, if a wife could actually take her husband's life in defense of herself, we argue from the greater to the lesser. That is, if she's in danger or her children are in danger, she needs to get them out of that situation. She's no longer required in that situation to submit to him. So it doesn't mean that you should, first of all, tolerate any kind of physical abuse. Secondly, submission does not mean that you should sin in following your husband's instructions. You remember the great passage in Acts chapter 4 where the apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel. And the leaders of Israel said to them, you know what, stop it. Stop preaching the gospel. And they said, well, sorry, we can't stop. We can't stop preaching the gospel because we're going to obey God rather than men. Ladies, you're not responsible to submit to your husband if A, he commands you to do what God forbids, or B, he commands you not to do what God requires. Your first and primary allegiance is to God. And it's perfectly legitimate to disregard, obviously in a gracious way, your husband if he should ask you to do such things. Thirdly, submission does not mean that you should refuse to graciously confront a pattern of sin in your believing husband. Notice I said believing husband. Husband who's claiming to know the Lord, claiming to be a Christian. Um. I think some Christian wives think that, well, I, I just should leave him alone. If he's got a pattern of sin in his life, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get involved in that. We're not called to protect our spouse's sin. We're called to challenge them. Now, you're to be patient, clearly, with your husband. Obviously, as he hopefully is patient and kind with you as well, but... You have to be careful here. Uh, Some wives are eager to jump on any slight violation their husband makes and then pounce on him when they expect to be treated more graciously and more patiently. That's not what we're talking about here. You need to be quick to forgive, particularly personal affronts. But if there's a pattern of sin in your husband's life, then you are obligated before God to do the same thing every other Christian is obligated to do. What is that? We've gone through that, the process found in Matthew chapter 18. You're responsible to graciously, at the right time, go to your husband and say, you know what, I've noticed this in your life, and I'm deeply concerned about it. I don't think it honors the Lord, and I have to urge you um, to stop it. If your husband doesn't respond and doesn't hear you, then you're obligated to go to the next step and bring someone into the process with you, along with you to confront that sin in his life. Now, this is a believing husband. Because I know some of you have non-believing husbands. We're not talking about that situation. We're talking about a husband that claims to know Christ. 
So husband does not mean that you tolerate an unrepentant pattern of sin in the life of your beloving, uh, be- believing husband. Nor does submission mean that the wife is somehow inferior to the husband. There's a lot of people that believe this. Remember, we're talking about roles here. Uh, all of us understand submission to some degree. We all have to submit to someone at some point. Whether you're in a home or a child, you have to submit to your parent. If you're employed, you have to submit to your employer. Ultimately, we all are called to submit to the government. Because submission is just part of our daily lives. It doesn't at all imply inferiority. Even Christ himself submits to the Father. That doesn't make him inferior to the Father. He's absolutely equal with the Father. See, we're talking about roles here. We're talking about roles. Well, what does it mean to submit then? Well, the Greek word means not only to submit or to be subject to, but to be subordinate to. And it's always used in submission to authority. It's used of Jesus submitting to his parents in Luke 2. It's used of citizens submitting to their government in Romans 13, as we just read. It's used of the whole universe submitting to Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. It's used of the church submitting to Christ in Ephesians 5. So to submit means to willingly take a subordinate role in relation to that of another. To willingly take on a subordinate role in relation to that of another. And we do this every day to some degree. And this is the responsibility of Christian wives to their husbands. By the way, this is a universal New Testament exhortation for wives. Every passage that deals with the relationship of the wife to her husband tells her to submit to him and uses the very same Greek word we see here in Ephesians chapter 5. Whether it's Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 5, or Titus chapter 2, verse 4. All the same admonition, all called to submit, all using the exact same word to subordinate oneself under someone else. To accept that person as duly constituted authority in your life. That's really what it means to submit. Well, that brings us to the second question. To whom are wives to submit? Our text tells us in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Look at what it says. It says, wives submit to your own husbands. To your own husbands. That's a critical phrase. Paul doesn't leave anything out here. Every time that this command to submit to wives is given... Some form of that expression is there. If you look at Titus chapter 2, verse 5, it says, being subject to their own husbands. It's an essential part of Paul's instructions for the wives. Now, there's a couple implications here in this to your own husband's phrase. The first is that no wife is excluded. Nobody gets a pass on this. We already said this is, this is a command for wives If you have a husband, you're responsible to submit to that husband. 
I've done enough counseling and met with enough couples, and I always hear the wife say, well, you don't know my husband. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. God does. Would you agree with that? God knows your husband. And God says, wise, no exception to be submissive, submit to your own husband. The second implication here is that not, wives are not subject to all men. Wives are not subject to all men, but only to their husbands. I've known some Christian men that look down on women in general because of this verse, and they rip it out of context. Well, yeah, they're supposed to be subject to me. Who do they think they are? Well, first of all, they're not your wife. So it's irrelevant because they're not called to be subject to you just because they're a female. That's a very misunderstood issue in our culture today. Nowhere does the Scripture teach that every woman must submit to every man in every situation. You're not going to find it. In fact, only in marriage and the church is leadership restricted to men. Only in marriage and the church is leadership restricted to men. And even in the church, men or women are not called upon to submit to every man, but only to the men whom God has placed over the church, the elders of the church. So you are simply to submit only to those men who are in a position of duly constituted authority over you by God. In the church, that's the elders of the church. In your home, in your family, that's your husband. Those are the two situations. I mean, some men read these passages about wives submitting to their husbands and they, they stick their, their hand in their shirt and, and pontificate almost like they're Napoleon or something and imagine that all women should do whatever they say wherever they're at. We've run into individuals like that. We all have. They're idiots. They don't know what they're talking about. That isn't the spirit of Ephesians 5. Be subject, wives, to your own husbands. Well, that brings up an interesting question. Well, what if my husband isn't a believer? What if my husband isn't a Christ follower? You're still responsible to submit. You're still responsible to submit. First uh, Peter chapter 3 addresses it back in verse, he says, in the same way there. Peter addresses the very situation. He begins chapter 3 by saying, in the same way. That refers back to verse 18 where he's talking about servants being submissive. And in verse 13 of First Peter 3 there, he says, 13 of all submitting ourselves to every institution. He's talking about the principle of submission. And he says, in the same way, in the very same principle of bringing yourself under someone else who is an authority over you, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, that is, they're unbelievers, that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as the husbands observe your pure and fearfully, that's literally what that means, behavior. In other words, they observe that you are pure before God and that you fear God. And as they see you submitting to them in that context, 
It says they'll be one without a word. You don't need to preach to them. You don't need to do anything. Now, obviously, this isn't a universal promise. It's not something that happens all the time, but it is a command. It's the way that you should approach your marriage if you're married to an unbeliever. I mean, we've all heard testimonies of couples when the wife, for many years in their marriage, never practiced 1 Peter 3. Instead, they preached at their husband day in and day out. They leave little gospel tracts where he watches TV on the arm of the chair and just constantly flood him with stuff. And what does it do? It alienates the husband from the wife. And when that same wife would come to understand what 1 Peter 3 is telling her to do, and they faithfully practice it over many years, she finds a confidence that she understands that the Lord is, is going to bring her husband to Christ. And that's exactly what happens a lot of times. So that's what Peter says there. To whom are you to submit? To your own husband. To your own husband. Well, that brings a third question here we need to answer. With what attitude should you submit? Right? You can submit, but with the wrong attitude. We've all done that in our lives. So he says in verse 22, he points out, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Be submissive to your own husbands as to the what? As unto the Lord. Wow. You are to submit to your own husband as if your husband were the Lord himself. That's what it's saying. Alexander Strzok wrote this in his book. He said, this little phrase tells us that the wife's submission to her husband is part of her submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's so important to understand. Be subject to him as to the Lord. Well, what does that look like? Well, the picture is kind of developed for us in Colossians, not in the husband and wife relationship, but in the context of authority and submission relationship with slaves and masters. Not that wives are slaves. We're not saying that. But in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, it talks about a godly attitude accompanying that submission to authority. He says in verse 22, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Paul's saying here that slaves, by implication, all of us who are called to submit to others in authority, that God has placed over us, we are to submit ourselves. We're to submit ourselves not for the sake of that person, but we're to do it as if it were the Lord himself. We're to serve the Lord through that. We're to submit ourselves as if to the Lord. That's to be the mindset. That's to be the attitude. Back in Ephesians 5, down in verse 33, there's a summary of the wife's duty. In verse 33, it says, However, um, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And then it says, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
This also deals with the attitude of submission. It's not a begrudging submission. There's a lot of Christian wives, especially, that do that. I'll do what he says, whatever. That's what the Bible tells me I got to do. But they don't respect their husbands at all. They talk about their husbands at every chance they have. They don't have this attitude. Paul says you have to respect your husband. Paul doesn't ask if your husband is worthy of respect. He doesn't ask whether or not you feel respectful. He doesn't ask if you're more intelligent or more capable than your husband. He doesn't even raise the issue of whether you're more godly than your husband. All that's irrelevant. He simply commands you to make a decision to obey God by choosing to respect your husband as you do Christ. I'll tell you what, in the counseling I've done with couples, if you choose to obey this principle, if you will work hard at respecting your husband as you submit to him with that kind of attitude, you'll begin to see more and more and more in your husband that you honestly do respect. One writer put it this way, it has actually been wisely stated, obedience is the opener of the eyes. Discontent blinds women to the many good qualities in their husbands. But when gratitude and respect are cultivated, wives find more and more and more to respect. So you make the decision to obey, and as time goes by, you'll see more to respect in your husband. I mean, what would your husband say if I asked him, how are you doing in your attitude of submission? Is there respect there? Are you doing it as unto the Lord? That's the attitude that the Lord desires. Well, there's a fourth question here quickly. For what reason are wives to submit? Verse 23, for the, the, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, himself being the Savior of the body. Notice it begins there for, this is the, the reason given. Paul's doing this, this explanation here. He doesn't say the husband ought to be the head of the wife. He says he is the head of the wife in the same way that Christ is the head of his church and the Savior of the, bo- the body. Excuse me. It's a reality. It's not a by chance thing. Douglas Wilson, in his book, Reforming Marriage, says this, Arguing with the fact of the husband's headship in the home is like jumping off a cliff in order to quarrel with the law of gravity. Marshal all the arguments you want on the way down however you like. You will eventually find yourself refuted in a messy kind of way. (laughs) See, the word head is the common Greek word for the physical head of the body. We all understand that. Nobody has our heads at the bottom of our body. They're on the top of our body. They're the top of the body. They direct the activity of the body with the brain. You can even, in our culture, we use it figuratively when it comes to leadership. Someone is in in a position of authority. We speak of them sometimes as what? The head of state or the head of a department. What's that mean? They're in charge. 
They're in the position of leadership. Now, men, this means that God has placed you in the inescapable position of leadership, whether you like it or not, within your family. You are the head. It doesn't even matter if you act like the head or not. It's irrelevant. You are God-ordained as the head of your family. You may not feel like leading your family, but you are leading. And ladies, whether you like it or not, your husband is leading. He may not be leading in the way that you want him to, but he is. It may not be the best kind of leadership. It may be an extremely subtle kind of leadership. And maybe you don't want to follow it. But if you really want to follow, just stop talking, watch, and listen to God's command and just do it. He is the head. And it's a matter of you choosing to follow however he leads in whatever fashion he leads. In Titus chapter 2, verse 5, another reason for godly wives to submit to their, submit to their husbands is not only because he's the head, as Christ is the head, but also that the word of God, it says, will not be dishonored. This is so important for you to understand. This is motivation for the wives to submit to their husbands. By submitting to your husbands as an as it's encouraged in Scripture itself, you keep the Word of God from being dishonored as a Christian woman. Well, that brings to the final question. In what areas are wives to submit? What areas? Verse 24. I don't think this is in your outline, but um, in what areas are you to submit? Verse 24. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands. Look at what it says. What's it say? I know, it's hard to get out. Go ahead and say it. In everything. Tough. In everything. Wow. In everything. You can't get any clearer than that. You just can't. I've talked to couples about this. and They come to that verse and they say, well, I know it says everything, but what about <laughs> it says everything? Remember, I listened to one, one lady. She was a real health nut. She said, I can't submit to my husband. She, she feeds my kids sugar. He feeds my kids sugar, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't like submitting to that. Well, what's going to hurt, hurt your child more? To have a little sugar or a mother who disobeys the clear command to submit to her husband, their father? Um. I mean, the, the way many wives approach this command is like the man who said that he and his wife were married. When they were married, they agreed together that he would make all the big decisions and she would make all the little decisions. And he said, you know, after 20 years of marriage, there hasn't been one big decision. <laughs> I'm amazed. Carol Mahaney, in her book, in Feminine Appeal, she writes this, all my, she, she, she lists a, a bunch of excuses that women give for not submitting to their husbands. And she writes, these are, all my husband ever does is watch ESPN, 
My husband is irresponsible with the finances. I have a husband who never disciplines the children. I'm married to a man who doesn't lead our family well. And then she concludes this at the end of the paragraph. She says, none of these excuses are admissible. Unless a moral issue is at stake, we are obligated by Scripture to submit to our husbands. Elizabeth Elliot wrote this, God's word does not give us any footnotes in, any, in everything. <laughs> so there's nothing there more to understand than it's everything. And everything doesn't mean that you just go along with whatever he specifically asks. That's how some Christian wives live. They live in um, fear that he, he's going to ask something because then they're going to have to do it. And they just hope that he keeps his mouth shut. And as long as that does, then she doesn't have to submit to that thing if he doesn't ask her to. That's not the spirit behind the expression here. It's to be subject to your husbands in everything. And that means that you choose to build your life around him and his desires. It means that you do what your husband wants. I don't know what he wants. Ask him. Very simple. I mean, we're not, you know, rocket scientists, ladies. We're pretty simple, most of us. And let me just say that submission doesn't mean that you can't graciously appeal to your husband when he makes a bad decision. Because I guarantee you, he'll make some bad decisions. (laughs) But if your husband makes a bad decision... It's okay to appeal to him. You don't just quietly lay down and not say anything. Daniel 1, if you read through that, you'll see a great process for doing that, a respectful process for working that out. Daniel chapter 1. But in the end, you must be willing to submit your will to his. Now, that is completely countercultural. Sure, get some blowback. That's okay. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just giving you what God says in his word. That's what the Bible teaches. Read it for yourself. Study this passage for yourself. Ask God to to reveal to your heart as a wife how you can best serve your husband in the way that God calls you to. In 1 Peter, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll, we'll close with this. 1 Peter 3. First Peter three three. He says, Do not let your adorning be external. Talking to ladies, the wives, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. In other words, don't spend all of your time worrying about the outside, ladies. Now, it's okay to spend some of the time worrying about the outside because we like you to look nice. One guy said, you know, it's okay to put a little paint on the barn if the barn needs a little paint. It's all right. But don't spend all your time there. Verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is far more precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own 
husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. We don't have to go that far, but. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I mean, let's be honest, ladies. When it comes to submission, submitting to your husband in everything, I guarantee you there's some fear in that. Verse 5 of there, that text, it says, Don't put your hope in your husband. You submit to your husband, but where is your hope? Your hope is in God, because you're being obedient to your God. In the end, it comes down to this. Submission is simply a demonstration of your confidence in the sovereign power of God. It's really a test of your faith. Do you really believe that God controls your husband? And that he can change his heart if he chooses Just as he changes the heart of the king, the proverb says. Do you really believe that? If so, then you can freely and willingly submit to your husband. I know that's hard. It's a tall order. But when you go back to Ephesians 5, there's only one way to live this out. It's being filled with the Spirit. It's being controlled, permeated, and just dominated by the Word of God and everything. Trusting God to direct your husband. To intervene. If he doesn't choose to intervene in this life, rewarding you and eternally for your faithfulness with this man in the end. This isn't a promise that if you submit to your husband, oh, everything's just going to go great. No. Or if you're with an unbelieving husband and you're treating him respectfully and, and submitting to his authority in the home, that all of a sudden he's going to become a Christian. It doesn't say that. But your reward, you may not see it this side of glory, but you'll definitely see it in, in heaven one day for that kind of attitude. Next week, we'll look at Titus 2 uh, in regards to the wise. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we ask that you would just uh, um, help the clarity of your word permeate our hearts and our minds. And, and really, um, I pray for the ladies here today. I know that... <laughs> Uh, The topic of submission is just something that's so outside of the bounds of our culture to even understand or to grasp. But Lord, your word is very clear. And Father, we're first and foremost called to submit to you and your authority. And uh, Lord, we do that. Um, As brothers and sisters in Christ, as husbands and as wives, we want the very best for our families, for our marriages, for our church. And the only way to do that is to Come to your word and declare what it says and then submit ourselves to it. And Father, we know that that's only possible through the filling of your spirit, through your power, through your work in us and through us. Lord, left on our own, we we, uh, crash and burn quickly. As a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as a child, we can't do what you've called us to do outside of your divine intervention. That's why you left the Spirit with us. That's why you left the Spirit to fill us and to guide us and to lead us in all these respects. But Father, the Spirit can't lead us if He's not part of our life. If if there's people here that have not come to Christ, maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling the weight of your sin, the burden of your sin on your shoulders, and you realize that, wow, I, I can't go another day carrying this burden of sin. Well, Christ has given you a way of escape, a way to come to him 
to confess your sins. It means to say the same thing God says about your sins. To acknowledge that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And when you declare that Savior to be the Lord Jesus Christ, and you desire to live for Him and not for yourself any longer, and you pray the prayer, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me the way of salvation. That's a prayer that he will answer when it's prayed from a sincere heart. And he will transform you. He'll make you a brand new person in Christ. It doesn't mean your life's going to be wonderful. But it means that the burden of that sin will be gone. And for the first time in your life, you'll understand what it means to have that vital, living, alive relationship with your God, creator, through Christ. I pray that if that's the prayer of your heart today, that you want to cry out to the Lord, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, that you'll let somebody know, someone you came with or someone in our church, so that we could help you on that journey. Father, we pray that you would bless our time and fellowship across the way, bless the food, and just give us a good remaining part of our weekend. And uh, Father, we look forward to serving you each and every day of this coming week. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen.